welcome to Subject Matter, where we help leaders navigate the tricky waters of building a company by shining a light on the subtleties that unlock empathetic communication, letting you build powerful relationships. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and together we empower B2B leaders with messages that connect with their customers and employees, heads and hearts. And now, let's get into today's story. Every leader today should be a digital leader. That's today's guest, David Knorr, a subject matter expert on how strategic relationships create sustained innovation, profitable growth, and lasting change. Born in Iran, Noor immigrated to the US as a teenager with just $100, limited family ties, and no fluency in English. Today, as the author of 10 books, Noor serves as a trusted board advisor, coaching corporate leaders on how to better leverage their relationships. He is an adjunct professor at Emory University's Goizueta Business School and at Vanderbilt University's Owen Graduate School of Management. Noor's most recent book, Curvebenders, breaks down how this special kind of strategic relationship, the curvebender, will power your nonlinear growth in the future of work. On today's episode, we break down exactly what the curvebender is and how they will accelerate your ability to reach that next version of yourself. We discuss why embracing the concept of non-linear growth is the key to thriving in today's dynamically changing marketplace. And we dig into what we can learn from Salesforce's chief evangelist on the evolving role of the personal brand for executives and leaders today. Nor is our first return guest on Subject Matter, and I really enjoyed this conversation with him. I hope you enjoy. So, Nor, I thought a good place to start today would be to make this idea of the curve benders real for our listeners. So, could you share an example of how a curve bender has dramatically impacted the trajectory of your own professional growth? I came into my own practice from years of sales, marketing, business development, consulting, private equity. Ben, I knew how to be a consultant. I knew how to be an advisor. And I had cut my teeth at some really reputable firms in developing those foundational skills, the knowledge, the behaviors. Yet when I went on my own, I went in with some preconceived notions of what consulting was. And I met a consultant's consultant, guy named Alan Weiss out of uh, Rhode Island. And I heard him speak his intellectual horsepower, his command of the English language immediately drew me in. And in that catalyst to really improve the manner in which I created value for my clients, I said, I want to know more about this guy and how he does what he does. So by really immersing myself in his approach to consulting, he dramatically changed my purview. He changed my lens on consulting. And by embracing his approach to that growth, I doubled my revenues of my practice in one year. And it wasn't a transactional event. It was a lot about how he thinks and the way he's coached and mentored and modeled the behaviors that I want to emulate. So Curvebender is by definition is a strategic relationship that doesn't just improve your performance, your execution, your results. 
they profoundly shape the person, the manager, the leader, the professional that you become. It's somebody who has a lasting and a long tail impact on you and your success. It seems like one of the key subtleties that comes out of that is the perspective shift. So before working with Alan, you had a set picture of how consultancy was going to be. And then after consuming his books, having the conversations with him, it sounds like it was really quite a fundamental altering of how you viewed the consultancy practice and and the industry you were in. In the book, I talk about this personal S-curve of reinvention, right? We all have to reinvent ourselves to remain relevant. Again, I had early on learned how to consult. So I was on the bottom end of the S. And as you start to climb, you kind of hit your strides. I had a successful practice. I had clients. I was serving them. It's when you reach that upper end of the S where you reach a place where I call your refraction point, where you feel like you're stagnant or you've learned all you can or you're on autopilot. And a catalyst kicks in that says, I want to go to a new height. I want to reach a new level. I want to think differently about this. That change in perspective opened the door to really see what he was capable of. And it's not just consuming those information or best practices or the coaching or mentoring. It's really the applications of them in your own world. So I jokingly tell people, I I can't be Alan, right? What I can do is embrace his approach, adapt those best practices, make them my own, and really apply them in my practice, in my growth, in my journey. So one of the other core messages of the book is that people tend to overestimate linear growth and underestimate nonlinear growth. Why do you think that business leaders tend to systematically undermine the importance of linear growth? Ben, it fundamentally goes back to, you hate to say it, but our education system Most of our education system goes back to the 1930s and 1940s manufacturing process, right? Let's get a group of people in a room. Let's teach them one thing. We'll move them to another room, teach them the next thing. And it's a very sequential based on a predetermined curriculum. It is genuinely the manufacturing process of teaching you something. What nonlinear is all about, you and I have discussed, is I don't need a four-year degree from MIT. Is it valuable? Unequivocally, yes. At the moment, I just need to learn how to code so I can solve an immediate challenge or or tackle an opportunity. That's an example of nonlinear growth where there's micro learning opportunities. You learn them faster. You learn more of them. You quickly put them together to immediately apply that learning, as I said, to solve a challenge or address an opportunity. It is unequivocally, I believe, the manner in which business professionals, knowledge workers will remain relevant in this very dynamic market that does not stay sane. Nonlinear is what many leaders and organizations need to embrace. And you see it in pockets of individuals, teams, departments, functions. It is unfortunately not as embraced as holistically as it could be because that education system that we all grow up in tends to translate into now corporate learning and development into our leadership development programs, into how we think about it. We decided to take a really competent salesperson and we want to make him a sales manager. Forget for a second that that may not be a good fit for them. But what do we do? We put them through a week-long sales manager training, 
right? And we teach them all this stuff versus how do we create a nonlinear micro learning while they're sales professionals? Number one, to ascertain, would this person really succeed as a manager? Number two, give them small micro learning opportunities to solve one facet of the problem, team-based selling, enterprise selling, multinational client selling. Those are all unique attributes that you'd want the person to learn before they got the title of a manager and leader and so on and so forth. So it's almost like having a cadence for growth and realizing that your staff are going to have to pick apart or, or take on board these attributes. But by having these specific skills, it doesn't just unlock the next step change in your career. It unlocks this quantum leap, which I think is that nonlinear growth part that you're driving at. Absolutely. With the caveat that that cadence, you have to own it. I've always believed you abdicating your personal and professional growth to some department or function or other part of the organization is a recipe for disaster. You have to become the CEO of your own personal and professional growth because that's the only way you're going to remain relevant. So do I believe in learning and development functions and talent development as an organizational asset? Unequivocally, yes. Do I know some L&D professionals that bring phenomenal value to the organizations? Unequivocally, yes. I just struggle in leaving that, leaving my growth to somebody else. Because you also know you, you know how you're wired, you know what lights you up, you know what makes you tick, you know what that next growth journey for you should be like, should be about, should focus on. What better opportunity to take that under your own guidance, create these micro learning opportunities, proactively seek opportunities to immediately apply that learning to solve a challenge or address an opportunity. There's a line in the book where you say the most important person in your professional network in the next 10 years, you haven't met yet. So sure. this is someone that is out there somewhere that you're looking to connect with. But what we're talking about here is putting the onus on something that you can completely control. So how do you think about, Noor, this tension between knowing that the curve bender is out there somewhere, someone who can catalyze this, your trajectory, but you fundamentally have to focus on what you can control and you can see in the moment. None of us can predict our future. So instead of trying to future gaze right into some crystal ball of what I might be doing or where I might end up, Curvebenders is all about a personal roadmap. So how do I create a roadmap? How do I focus on the things I can control to plan more proactively, hopefully more predictively, my next few steps, my next few growth opportunities. In the book, I talk about seven steps to meeting potential curve benders. It fundamentally starts with your understanding, your commitment of not just where am I today, but what's, you know, build on that personal foundation with a professional commitment to be the very best at what I do. If I didn't care about being a consultant or advisor, neither Alan or anybody else would have made a difference. But that commitment that I'm going to be the best advisor I can for my clients then lead to a catalyst, leads to a place that says there has to be a better version of me out there. How can I explore? Which again, dives into immersive inquiry. 
I read a whole bunch of his material. I attended a whole bunch of his programs to really immerse myself in that. What does that better version of me look like? And that's when you open yourself up to other relationships. That's when you open up yourself to other potential curve benders. So when they see your commitment, when they see your what I call agile execution, when you build a connection cadence to these individuals, then over time, they become curve benders. More importantly, they help clarify. They help really clear that line of sight to the best version of you. So I love this idea of the best version of yourself. And something that we believe here at Astutely is that you can't unlock your own potential as a leader without understanding yourself and understanding your employees as well. You've got to make your, your employees feel understood. Now, one of the interesting ideas that came out of the book is the relationship that a leader, a curve-bending leader would have with employees in their organization. So can you speak a bit more about this, Noor? What kind of relationship, if you think about this ideal curve-bending leader, the person that is the best version of themselves, if you like, what kind of relationship would they ideally have with their frontline employees? Ben, it's amazing how often we talk about soft skills. The newsflash is soft skills are a lot more difficult than many people believe. First and foremost, what I've observed in the best curve vendors that I've met is that they have this innate ability to demonstrate, not just talk about, but demonstrate a vested interest in the success, the long-term success of their people. Now, ideal if that long-term success is with our company, but I'm actually okay even if it isn't. Similarly, curve-bending leaders see that holistic individual. They see their strengths. They see their shortcomings. They see that they're human. They see that their mental well-being and well-being in general is just as important and a huge enabler of their success at work. So they really look at that holistic view of the person. They bring this tough love to their conversations that says, Ben, you're very good at what you do. But you know what? I've observed more than once that you tend to be really abrasive and you burn a lot of these bridges, bridges that are going to be critical to your success. And what I really want you to do is think about how to approach that situation a little differently the next time. So beyond coaching, beyond great mentors, beyond great bosses, they create this indelible imprint. They have this profound impact on shaping not just helping us execute, not just helping us perform and create results, but they shape the individuals we become. They shape the great spouses or parents we become. They shape the great human beings we become. And we remember them. I, I distinctly recall having interviewed over 100 executives for this book, Ben. And one of the questions I asked them is, can you think of a common trait that the curve benders in your life may have in common. Inevitably, every single one of them said they saw the best version of me. Even when I couldn't see it myself, they saw the raw ingredients of the leader, of the person that I could become. And they shaped, they molded, they nudged, they pushed back, they introduced others. They invited me into 
communities and into their homes, into their lives where I met others and it gave me that motivation to transform myself as a person, as a leader, as an individual. Could you speak a little bit more about the role of empathy and how this helps us build relationships with these potential curve benders? In our research, we saw that their scale as an empathetic leader is bent very high because they recall their own journey, because they see some of their own past struggles in individuals they take under their wings. Curve benders, by definition, are after the key success attributes that will enable, if not enhance and accelerate your reinvention. So they already begin with you being at a certain level of competency and capability. So they're very selective in in individuals they really take under their wings. And what they look for are those early glimpses of those attributes, right? Intellectual curiosity initiative, challenging of the status quo, not defending it, tact, your ability to empathize with others, your ability to pay it forward and coach and mentor others, your ability to separate your emotions from your decision-making. These are all the attributes. These are all the, if you will, the raw ingredients that I believe and our research shows that curve benders look for in shaping, in coaching, in mentoring, in guiding, in molding individuals that they work with, they really embrace. Ben, here's another fascinating piece of research. It turns out they had curve benders early on in their lives. A professor took a particular interest in them. An early boss really pushed them to be at their best early on. And they followed these individuals. They've stayed in touch with a grad school professor from 20, 30, 40 years ago. They have had individuals that have followed them from company to company. They've followed leaders to different organizations, Mm. not for additional compensation, not for a greener pasture, but because they knew that this person had a vested interest in their long-term success. And that I think is one of the really interesting parts of the curve bender philosophy is to stop thinking in terms of these kind of short-term cycles. I think something that's quite prominent in the job market today for people just starting to work with or find these curve benders is a tendency to stay at a company for six months, a year, 18 months, jump to the next thing, jump to the next thing. And before you know it, you have a CV that's like 15 companies deep before you've turned 30. And when someone looks at that, they see that you don't have longevity in you. I've, I've got a friend who's been working with the same agency now for nine years. He started answering the phones at 17 and he finally got his break last year and he's doing really well because of it. And he did that because he was able to think in long-term time horizons. And the real payoff for these curve benders, it seems, is not just in the year, in the 18 months. It's playing the long game to keep investing in them and see that payoff over a very long time horizon. People who spend years at 10, 15 different companies, what I want them to think about is this idea of your personal market value. Organizations take certain steps to increase the inherent value of their companies, right? And this shows up in 
their ability to raise capital or if they go to the public markets, they've done certain things in terms of their product portfolio or their global footprint or their broad array of, of services. So to increase the value of the organization, what can every one of us as individuals do to likewise increase our personal market value? And I identified three kind of layers, if you will. There's fundamentally a foundational layer, right? This is your core set of attributes. This is who you are as a person in terms of those DNA characteristics, those maybe perhaps your upbringings, the the things that basically become your, your brand equity, right? They become fundamental who you're about. And then really your professional acumen, your professional demeanor. Think of that as all foundational. Next, you build a set of what I call value accelerants. This is your financial acumen. How savvy are you, especially since we're talking about business environment? You put on top of that your relational breadth and depth, the diversity, the quality of the relationships you've built and you've maintained over the years. And all of that attributes to what we call your brand, right? Is that what are the brand attributes? How are you described amongst others? Build on top of a foundational set of rings and value accelerants. And now you get what I call growth enablers. And growth enablers are things like resilience. How relevant are you not to just what's happening in the market today, but the evolution of the market and how will you remain relevant with all the technologies, all the things that are coming our way? The pinnacle of your growth accelerant is the S-curve I mentioned. Are you reinventing yourself quickly enough, sufficiently enough, with enough breadth and depth to kind of remain relevant and raise the value in which you're perceived not just in your current job and your company, but in the market in which you choose to function within. And the personal market value, I think, speaks to this idea that everyone is their own market or at least can create their own market. A hundred years ago, we were trusting in the institution. So if your country told you to go to war as a young strapping lad, I would be on the next boat. Now we don't have so much trust in our institutions. Now we trust companies over the last 50, 60 years. But again, with companies like Facebook, we see this trust in the company slowly eroded. And now we're at this point where the trust resides in the individual. So when you want to work for a company, you don't just look at the company's website, you look at the team, you look at the founder, the executive leadership team, what's their pedigree? Have they posted online? What is their brand saying? And so this kind of links back to the market that you're creating is inherently your own. You'll intersect with other relationships. You'll be part of a network, but you get to decide your own role as a node. And there's never been a better opportunity to actually do that. You're exactly right. And more importantly, this personal market value approach, Ben, you're a lot more proactive in really determining where am I today? Where do I want to be? Where do I see myself going? None of us, again, can predict our future. We can all plan for it. And if you have a blueprint that says, here's how I'm going to dramatically increase, enhance the value of what I bring to any and every organization I choose to associate with, you should be interviewing the company as much as they're interviewing you. Is this someplace where I want to hang my hat? Is this someplace where I want to attribute my brand and my assets to for some period of time. I think the days of our parents staying at a job for 30 years for a pen are long gone. U.S. labor statistics says by the time we're 
in our early 30s, we've worked for 14 different companies. Average tenure of a CEO is six and a half years. It's really you taking a much more proactive approach to am I learning? Am I growing? Am I creating outcomes, not just output? Empirical data shows enhanced, increased, elevated personal market value leads to additional roles, responsibilities, higher compensation, higher job satisfaction, stronger work-life blending. These are all attributes that you have enormous control over. The sentiment of control is interesting. And I think one of the things that companies perhaps don't realize they have so much control over is innovation. And you have this line in the book where you say, most organizations don't lack innovative ideas. They struggle with barriers that prevent great ideas from being implemented. So what typically stops organizations from implementing innovative ideas? And perhaps here you could touch on your concept of strategy visualization as a catalyst for innovation. There are several stumbling blocks in many, particularly mature companies and mature industries, their culture becoming one of enablers of real innovation, not inhibitors of it. So let me explain. Number one, I believe visual storytelling is a new leadership competency. So the CEO, the board, the senior leadership team's ability to visually, succinctly, passionately articulate, here's where we're going, here's how we're going to get there, is more critical than ever before because of all this uncertainty that's all around us. We also believe in simple, easy, fast. Is it simple to understand, easy to internalize, and fast to act on? Because if you make me spend a lot of calories just to figure out where we're going and how we're going to get there, you're going to lose market opportunities, right? That's number one. Number two, I believe in a set of kind of prioritized pursuits. Companies like GE divest a lot of businesses that may have served them well in the Jack Welsh 1980s market. They're divesting a lot of those businesses because they figured out they're distractions and they're not really lending themselves to your transformation, to your evolution. So I spoke with one CEO in my interviews who literally tells me that they have 69 priorities. I said, respectfully, you have no priorities, right? Because no one can remember 69 priorities you want to pursue. So what are the top three to five that will really become those growth accelerants, those, in essence, curve-bending moments in the value of the enterprise? Mm. Next is really a, a dynamic org structure. What we found is the current metrics and compensation in most organizations are not conducive to innovation. Think about it a second. If I'm paid on my PL, if I'm paid on my quarterly results, if I'm paid on certain metrics that are in the short-term need of the organization that I must focus on to achieving, that is in many ways the antithesis of that long-term investing inquiry exploration, experimentation, all of those things that produce real innovation, they take time, they take effort, they take hypotheses that you have to go and prove whether they're valid or you disprove them. And if so, how valid? Are they desirable? Are they viable? Are they plausible, right? So all the things that will contribute to success of real innovation 
and not innovation theater, not just lip service, are the antithesis of how we measure, how we compensate managers and leaders today. Number three, if you think about any core business, Ben, the core business they've built, in essence, is a perfect execution box, right? Let's take a set of processes that we know work, and let's create a repeatable, predictable process so we have a very strong sense of the outcomes. By definition, innovation is unknown. It's messy. It is full of all kinds of two steps forward, one step back, and three steps back so we can take two steps forward. And all of those iterations don't lend themselves very kindly to that perfect execution box. We believe real innovation in the organizations of future are going to come from a very succinct visual story that our strategy visualization approach addresses, courage by the CEO, by the board, by the leadership to invest in the long-term viability of their organization, commitment to that long-term, not just a quarter. The senior leadership team and the board's line of sight is really set on what will we do? How will we be a different organization in the future? And a separate environment, we call it a sandbox engine, that's separate from that core business to inquire, experiment, and explore new business models, new growth opportunities. Something you said that I want to pick up on, which is the need for leaders to have courage and the courage to invest in new opportunities and not just do things that they've always been done. One of the things I'm interested and impressed by your personal brand is how prolific you are across these platforms. You have a blog, you have a newsletter, you have your podcasts, you have your LinkedIn, your Twitter. And this seems like for a lot of enterprise companies, this might be something that they are overlooking. So I know someone that's been on your podcast, Tiffany Bova, is a sales evangelist or a company evangelist for Salesforce. She brands herself a cultural anthropologist, and her job is literally to dissect businesses and to empower them within the Salesforce ecosystem. So what kind of opportunity do you think there is, Nor, for leaders who might be listening or watching this episode to have the courage to invest in their own brands and in specifically in sharing their own ideas online. How can we think about that in using that in service of building towards our curve benders? Thank you for bringing up that the curve benders podcast. And you're right, Tiffany Bova is one of the recent guests who's exemplary in three points that I want your audience to think about. Number one, we often hear today that every business is a digital business. I would submit to you that every leader should be a digital leader. So how you show up on digital, how you convey your ideas, your perspectives, your lens digitally is been more critical than ever before. And I think the pandemic accelerated the need for most executives to have a strong, consistent, and a compelling digital presence. For years, Many of our personal brands as an individual, as a leader, was unequivocally tied to our companies, nor works at XYZ company. Ben is an employee of ABC firm. Tiffany is a great example of leaders who have set out to proactively create their own personal brands, their own. Your name is your biggest brand and biggest asset, right? So they're creating 
this personal brand of thought or practice leadership. And I'm coaching a lot of executives that is more critical than ever for you as a leader because that logo on your business card, good chance it will change. For most of us, our names aren't going to, right? So when you build a personal brand, you become David Knorr and his company, Ben Bradbury and his firm, not in lieu of. And what we believe is one can also, just like it can dilute, one can also enhance the other. So if I'm recognized for my work at an industry event, my name, my work, my brand contributes to my organization. Conversely, if my organization succeeds, the fact that I'm associated with that organization enhances, elevates my brand. But I believe this is the time. And the pandemic, again, the springboard as an accelerant to not just proactively be digital, but also build a independent personal brand. And number three, I want to go back to something that you've been masterful and you've, you've certainly helped me, which is don't just contribute to the noise. Bring either a contrarian perspective, bring a unique perspective, bring an independent insight, bring some unique facet that fundamentally will set you apart from your contemporaries, from others that might be in the same role or even in the same company, but because you're you, because you think very uniquely, because you bring a very unique perspective to the table, will absolutely set you apart. And going back to that personal market value, that brand, give me two equally competent, capable executives, and I would submit their digital, their brand, their outcomes they've created, obviously will set them apart from others. And I believe that will continue to be an asset to every leader. I love this idea that we're going to change companies maybe a dozen times in a career at least, but you're never going to change your name. And it's ultimately, it's like the longest term bet that you can make is betting on yourself and betting on the projects that you work on. So when Elon Musk exited PayPal, he invested all of his money back into Tesla and back into SpaceX. He took his net worth down to comparatively pennies. And now obviously look at him, one of the richest men in the world, but specifically because he betted on himself, because he betted on his ideas. And you don't have to be building rockets to bet on your ideas. You, as you said, Nor, you just have to have some kind of original thought, some kind of angle to the way that you present yourself. Look at the way you described it, Elon Musk and Tesla, Elon Musk and SpaceX. Exactly. Yeah. You, you don't yeah. you didn't say just Tesla or, or SpaceX. The individual now has a brand. And most people think, well, I'm not Elon Musk. You, as you said, you don't have to be. What you do need is a set of independent perspectives and unique thoughts and platforms. Whatever platforms works for you. I, I believe in individual websites. Why not have a website that's your name? Why not have a blog that's your name? Why not have a podcast or a newsletter? That's your name. That is your brand. And what a fabulous opportunity to keep both your current but also prospective relationships appraised of your progress, of your success, of the outcomes you're creating. So let's switch tack slightly here to uh, another concept in the book, which is the Curve Benders Roadmap. 
And what I want to do for our audience is to give them something really concrete that they can go away with to start practicing and specifically to start building the habits into their own lives and into their business. So you talk about in the book, Nor, the set of five repeatable actions that you can take to accelerate your relationships, relevance, and personal market value. And these key habits are the way that you can consistently nurture curve benders in your own life. So can you break down for our audience those five actions and how they help us find curve benders at each stage? So chapter seven, the final chapter in the book, is really exactly that. It's your roadmap to curve benders. So number one, I identify several timelines or time horizons, right? So think of one to two years, got a three to five, six to nine, and 10 plus. Each of those time frames, I break it into five very specific set of steps, very specific and actionable things that your listeners can do to really put themselves in the best possible position to not just meet curve vendors, but really leverage them to really create this non-linear growth that we've been talking about. Step one, I talk a lot about aligning your personal and professional aspirations. Ben, I coach a lot of leaders who respectfully don't know who they are. They don't know where they're going and they feel unsettled because suddenly they find themselves. And this pandemic, again, has accelerated that. The things that brings them joy, what they aspire to do as individuals is incongruent with what the organization is asking them to do. So step one is you've got to make sure there's alignment. I often say relationships go bad with misaligned expectations. So if you work on the first step is aligning those personal aspirations. Here's where I want to go. Here's what I want to do. Here's where I believe I'm at my best. Here's what I know makes me tick and I show up and I show up at my best. Are those aligned with where the organization needs someone like me, right? So is my role a fit with those aspirations? That's step one. Step two, design effective inputs. In terms of a lean input diet, I subscribe to 20 some odd different newsletters. Most people don't have time to read those, so I scan them. And they become really interesting lean sources of insights for me to then act on, for me to then recommend, for me to then inquire further about. So that creating effective inputs that shape your thought, your language, your actions become invaluable. Step three. Immersive inquiry. You have to be passionate about a topic. You have to be passionate about an industry. You have to be passionate about a, a field to really immerse yourself and absorb all that you can about that topic. That's where you start to develop breadth and depth. And I would submit in the future, we're going to need more deep generalists. Learn a lot of different things about a lot of different areas where you can defend your position and really immerse yourself in that inquiry, not just regurgitate something, which leads us to step four, invest in your relationship bank. I wrote about your relationship bank in my first book called Relationship Economics. This, in essence, I believe is your biggest personal and professional asset, which is your portfolio of relationships. Your relationship bank should be diverse. It should have depth. It should have, obviously, quality. It should be of equal or greater stature. Those are all attributes of your bank, but like any other investment, it will not grow. It will not yield results unless you intentionally invest in it. 
which then leads us to step five, which is capitalize your curve benders. If you invest in those relationships, if you've committed to being the very best of what you do, if you seek out curve benders and create mutually valuable relationships, they will likewise pay dividends in folds over the years. So I think what's great about this is for everyone listening, you can break this process down and this quite lofty goal, let's be honest, of finding someone who can dramatically accelerate your personal S-curve, your trajectory into a set of very implementable steps. The interesting thing as well is that the subject matter audience are curious. They're curious learners and they want to better themselves. And what this is essentially saying is that you can match that curiosity, the immersive inquiry with the inputs you're getting and the outputs you're having. But you just add this extra layer, which is to invest that into another person. So rather than it just staying as a thought in your head, you're being proactive in actually passing that forward. Every one of us can plan. And you're exactly right. The steps in chapter seven are all intended to be a set of very actionable things we can all do. The question is the consistency. And that's one of the things I've learned in Ben, crazy to believe, two decades of this business. When it comes to your biggest asset, which is your portfolio of relationships, consistency matters far more than creativity. Because anyone can meet somebody else or get in the door once. How are you getting your return ticket punched? How are you getting invited back? How are you building that relational cadence to pique their interest and give them the curiosity to want to know more about you and get to know you better and get involved with you? And not just a project or a sale or a program or any sliver but really that long-term viability of your personal and professional growth. Now, you've been a student of business relationships, as you said, for several decades now. And in writing Curvebenders, what I'm interested to hear is whether any of your beliefs around building relationships were called into question. Or would you say the book was perhaps more crystallizing of what you already knew? I'm thinking a lot about relationships we neglect or we leave neglected. For years, I call them the you never know stack of business cards, right? You and I would go to a conference, we would meet a group of people, would come back with a stack of business cards and we put them on our desk and we had every intention of following up. And then life gets in the way and we get busy. And those stack of business cards like kind of keep staring at us, right? Didn't you say you were going to email me? Didn't you say you were going to follow up? And days go by. And then weeks and months, and suddenly that fabulous person we had that great conversation with have kind of faded. Or that great client we did some work with years ago because we got busy with other clients or other projects, or that great colleague we worked with, or that great grad student friend that we had and they were in our study groups. And right, so what I've learned, and Curvebenders really solidified this that the average individual can proactively manage about 100 to 150 relationships. Which ones? How do you know? If you can't invest in everyone equally, how will you then prioritize which relationships you're going to invest in? Now, this is where digital can become an asset. So if you and I are connected on LinkedIn, you, you, know, you may see some of the things that I'm doing and updates and whatnot, but it will not replace 
your proactive, strategic, and intentional investments. I actually believe in investing in fewer, but really going deeper with your relationships. So instead of everybody wants more, right? I want more customers. I want more contacts. I want more friends. And I jokingly call it the Jerry Maguire business model after the famous movie. (laughs) What if you focused on fewer, but you build deeper, more meaningful, more impactful, more long-lasting, more profound relationship, business relationships that you could back and say, I'm in a better position because I met Ben so many years ago. I'm in a better position because Noor and I have proactively stayed in touch and we see each other as a strategic asset, regardless of what any of us do. We're all fundamentally in the relationship business. And if you focus on few, but really strategic relationships, I think you might be surprised a decade or two from now of the profound impact they've had, not just on your work, but on your life. Beautifully said, Noor. I think that's a great place to end it for today. If our audience wants to learn more about you, learn more about Curvebenders, where can they go to keep up with your journey? I would welcome them to visit our website, norgroup, N-O-U-R group.com. From there, you can join our forum, which is our private online community. I'm fairly active on various social channels. Those are all on the page. But uh, Nor Group, again, N-O-U-R group.com is the best place to learn about me, Curvebenders, any of my ideas, our blog is there, our podcast is there. So I'd welcome your audience to visit us there. Fantastic. And one final plug for the Curvebenders podcast. For everyone who's listening, it is an exceptional listen. Well worth checking out. Thanks very much, Ben. You're welcome, Noor. Thanks for coming on. Hey, it's Ben here. Just before you head off, one quick thing. This podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication. And if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business, we've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees, heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, weareastutely.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.